Chapter Forty Nine of A Short History of the World by H. G. Wells. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Forty Nine: The Intellectual Revival of the Europeans. Throughout the twelfth century, there were many signs that the European intelligence was recovering courage and leisure, and preparing to take up again the intellectual enterprises of the first greek scientific inquiries and such speculations as those of the italian lucretius the causes of this revival were many and complex the suppression of private war the higher standards of comfort and security that followed the crusades and the stimulation of men's minds by the experiences of these expeditions were no doubt necessary preliminary conditions trade was reviving cities were recovering ease and safety the standard of education was arising in the church and spreading among laymen the thirteenth and fourteenth centuries was a period of growing independent or quasi-independent cities venice florence genoa lisbon paris bruges london antwerp hamburg nuremberg novgorod visby and bergen for example they were all trading cities with many travellers and where men trade and travel they talk and think the polemics of the popes and princes the conspicuous savagery and wickedness of the persecution of heretics were exciting men to doubt the authority of the church and question and discuss fundamental things we have seen how the arabs were the means of restoring aristotle to europe and how such a prince as Frederick the Second acted as a channel through which Arabic philosophy and science played upon the renascent European mind. Still more influential in the stirring up of men's ideas were the Jews. Their vast existence was a note of interrogation to the claims of the Church. And finally, the secret, fascinating inquiries of the alchemists were spreading far and wide and setting men to the petty, furtive, and yet fruitful resumption of experimental science. And the stir in men's minds was by no means confined now to the independent and well-educated. The mind of the common man was awake in the world as it had never been before in all the experience of mankind. In spite of priest and persecution, Christianity does seem to have carried a mental ferment wherever its teaching reached. It established a direct relation between the conscience of the individual man and the God of righteousness, so that now, if need arose, he had the courage to form his own judgment upon prince or prelate or creed. As early as the eleventh century, philosophical discussion had begun again in Europe, and there were great and growing universities at Paris, oxford bologna and other centres there medieval schoolmen took up again and thrashed out a series of questions upon the value and meaning of words that were a necessary preliminary to clear thinking and scientific age that was to follow and standing by himself because of his distinctive genius was roger bacon circa twelve ten to circa twelve ninety three a Franciscan of Oxford, the father of modern experimental science. 
his name deserves a prominence in our history second only to that of Aristotle. His writings are one long tirade against ignorance. He told his age it was ignorant, an incredibly bold thing to do. Nowadays a man may tell the world it is as silly as it is solemn, that all its methods are still infantile and clumsy, and its dogmas childish assumptions, without much physical danger. But these peoples of the Middle Ages, when they were not actually being massacred, or starving, or dying of pestilence, were passionately convinced of the wisdom, the completeness and finality of their beliefs, and disposed to resent any reflections upon them very bitterly. Roger Bacon's writings were like a flash of light in a profound darkness. He combined his attack upon the ignorance of his times with a wealth of suggestion for the increase of knowledge. In his passionate insistence upon the need of experiment and of collecting knowledge, the spirit of Aristotle lives again in him. Experiment, experiment, that is the burthen of Roger Bacon. Yet of Aristotle himself Roger Bacon fell foul. He fell foul of him because men, instead of facing facts boldly, sat in rooms and pored over the bad Latin translations, which were then all that was available of the master. If I had my way, he wrote in his intemperate fashion, I should burn all the books of Aristotle, for the study of them can only lead to a loss of time, produce error, and increase ignorance. A sentiment that Aristotle would probably have echoed, could he have returned to a world, in which his works were not so much read as worshipped, and that, as Roger Bacon showed, in these most abominable translations. Throughout his books, a little disguised by the necessity of seeming to square it all with orthodoxy for fear of the prison and worse, Roger Bacon shouted to mankind, Cease to be ruled by dogmas and authorities. Look at the world. Four chief sources of ignorance he denounced. Respect of authority, custom, the sense of the ignorant crowd, and the vain, proud unteachableness of our dispositions. Overcome but these, and the world of power would open to men. Machines for navigating are possible without rovers, so that great ships suited to river or ocean, guided by one man, may be borne with greater speed than if they were full of men. Likewise cars may be made, so that without a draught animal they may be moved, cum impetu incestimable, as we deem the skyst chariots to have been from which antiquity fought. And flying machines are possible, so that a man may sit in the middle turning some device, by which artificial wings may beat the air in the manner of a flying bird. So Roger Bacon wrote, but three more centuries were to elapse before man began any systematic attempts to explore the hidden stores of power and interest he realized so clearly existed beneath the dull surface of human affairs. But the Saracenic world not only gave Christendom the stimulus of its philosophers and alchemists, it also gave it paper. It is scarcely too much to say that paper made the intellectual revival of Europe possible. Paper originated in China, 
where its use probably goes back to the 2nd century B.C. In 751, the Chinese made an attack upon the Arab Muslims in Samarkand. They were repulsed, and among the prisoners taken from them were some skilled papermakers, from whom the art was learned. Arabic paper manuscripts from the 9th century onward still exist. The manufacture entered Christendom either through Greece or by the capture of Moorish paper mills during the Christian reconquest of Spain. But under the Christian Spanish, the product deteriorated sadly. Good paper was not made in Christian Europe until the end of the 13th century, and then it was Italy which led the world. Only by the 14th century did the manufacture reach Germany, and not until the end of that century was it abundant and cheap enough for the printing of books to be a practicable business proposition. Thereupon, printing followed naturally and necessarily, for printing is the most obvious of inventions, and the intellectual life of the world entered upon a new and far more vigorous phase. It ceased to be a little trickle from mind to mind, it became a broad flood, in which thousands and presently scores and hundreds of thousands of minds participated. One immediate result of this achievement of printing was the appearance of an abundance of Bibles in the world. Another was a cheapening of school books. The knowledge of reading spread swiftly. There was not only a great increase of books in the world, but the books that were now made were plainer to read and so easier to understand. Instead of toiling at a crabbed text, arid then thinking over its significance, readers now could think, unimpeded as they read. With this increase in the facility of reading, the reading public grew. The book ceased to be a highly decorated toy or a scholar's mystery. People began to write books to be read as well as looked at by ordinary people. They wrote in the ordinary language, and not in Latin. With the 14th century, the real history of the European literature begins. So far we have been dealing only with the Saracenic share in the European revival. Let us turn now to the influence of the Mongol conquests. They stimulated the geographical imagination of Europe enormously. For a time under the great Khan, all Asia and Western Europe enjoyed an open intercourse. All the roads were temporarily open, and representatives of every nation appeared at the court of Karakorum. The barriers between Europe and Asia, set up by the religious void of Christianity and Islam, were lowered. Great hopes were entertained by the papacy for the conversion of the Mongols to Christianity. Their only religion so far had been Schumanism, a primitive paganism. Envoys of the Pope, Buddhist priests from India, Parisian and Italian and Chinese artificers, Byzantine and Armenian merchants, mingled with Arab officials and Persian and Indian astronomers and mathematicians at the Mongol court. We hear too much in history of the campaigns and massacres of the Mongols, and not enough of their curiosity and desire for learning. Not perhaps as an originative people, but as transmitters of knowledge and method, their influence upon the world's history has been very great. 
and everything one can learn of the vague and romantic personalities of Genghis or Kublai tends to confirm the impression that these men were at least as understanding and creative monarchs as either that flamboyant but egoistical figure Alexander the Great, or that raiser of political ghosts, the energetic but illiterate theologian Charlemagne. One of the most interesting of these visitors to the Mongol court was a certain Venetian, Marco Polo, who afterwards set down his story in a book. He went to China about 1272 with his father and uncle, who had already once made the journey. The great Khan had been deeply impressed by the elder Polos. They were the first men of the Latin peoples he had seen, and he sent them back with inquiries for teachers and learned men who could explain Christianity to him, and for various other European things that had aroused his curiosity. Their visit with Marco was their second visit. The three Polos started by the way of Palestine, and not by the Crimea, as in their previous expedition. They had with them a gold tablet and other indications from the Gate Khan that must have greatly facilitated their journey. The Great Khan had asked for some oil from the lamp that burns in the Holy Sepulchre at Jerusalem, and so thither they first went, and then by way of Kilikia into Armenia. They went thus far north because the Sultan of Egypt was raiding the Mongol domains at this time. Thence they came by way of Mesopotamia to Ormuz on the Persian Gulf, as if they contemplated a sea voyage. At Ormuz they met merchants from India. For some reason they did not take ship, but instead turned northward through the Persian deserts, and so by way of Balkh over the Pamir to Kashgar and by way of Khotan and the Lobnor into the Huanghu Valley and on to Pekin. At Pekin was the great Khan, and they were hospitably entertained. Marco particularly pleased Kublai. He was young and clever, and it is clear he had mastered the Tartar language very thoroughly. He was given an official position and sent on several missions, chiefly in southwest China. The tale he had to tell of vast stretches of smiling and prosperous country, all the way excellent hostelries for travellers, and fine vineyards, fields and gardens, of many abbeys of Buddhist monks, of manufactures of clothes of silk and gold and many fine taffetas, a constant succession of cities and boroughs, and so on, first roused the incredulity and then fired the imagination of all Europe. He told of Burma, and of its great armies with hundreds of elephants, and how these animals were defeated by the Mongol bowmen, and also of the Mongol conquest of Pegu. He told of Japan, and greatly exaggerated the amount of gold in that country. For three years Marco ruled the city of Yangzhou as governor, and he probably impressed the Chinese inhabitants as being little more of a foreigner than any Tartar would have been. He may also have been sent on a mission to India. Chinese records mention a certain polo attached to the Imperial Council in 1277, a very valuable confirmation of the general truth of the polo story. The publication of Marco Polo's travels produced a profound effect 
upon the European imagination. The European literature, and especially the European romance of the 15th century, echoes with the names in Marco Polo's story, with Cathay, North China, and Cambulac, Pekin, and the like. Two centuries later, among the readers of the travels of Marco Polo, was a certain Genoese mariner, Christopher Columbus, who conceived the brilliant idea of sailing westward round the world to China. In Seville, there is a copy of the travels with marginal notes by Columbus. There were many reasons why the thought of a Genoese should be turned in this direction. Until its capture by the Turks in 1453, Constantinople had been an impartial trading mart between the Western world and the East, and the Genoese had traded there freely. But the Latin Venetians, the bitter rivals of the Genoese, had been the allies and helpers of the Turks against the Greeks, and with the coming of the Turks, Constantinople turned an unfriendly face upon Genoese trade. The long-forgotten discovery that the world was round had gradually resumed its sway over men's minds. The idea of going westward to China was therefore a fairly obvious one. It was encouraged by two things. The mariner's compass had now been invented, and men were no longer left to the mercy of a fine night and the stars to determine the direction in which they were sailing, and the Normans, Catalonians, and Genoese and Portuguese had already pushed out into the Atlantic as far as the Canary Isles, Madeira, and the Azores. Yet Columbus found many difficulties before he could get ships to put his idea to the test. He went from one European court to another. Finally at Granada, just won from the Moors, he secured the patronage of Ferdinand and Isabella, and was able to set out across the unknown ocean in three small ships. After a voyage of two months and nine days, he came to a land which he believed to be India, but which was really a new continent, whose distinct existence the old world had never hitherto suspected. He returned to Spain with gold, cotton, strange beasts and birds, and two wild-eyed painted Indians to be baptized. They were called Indians because, to the end of his days, he believed that this land he found was India. Only in the course of several years did men begin to realize that the whole new continent of America was added to the world's resources. The success of Columbus stimulated overseas enterprise enormously. In 1497, the Portuguese sailed round Africa to India, and in 1515, there were Portuguese ships in Java. In 1519, Magellan, a Portuguese sailor in Spanish employment, sailed out of Seville westward with five ships, of which one, the Vitoria, came back up the river to Seville in 1522, the first ship that had ever circumnavigated the world. Thirty-one men were aboard her, survivors of 280 who had started. Magellan himself had been killed in the Philippine Isles. Printed paper books, a new realization of the round world as a thing altogether attainable, a new vision of strange lands, strange animals and plants, strange manners and customs, discoveries overseas and in the skies, 
and in the ways and materials of life, burst upon the European mind. The Greek classics, buried and forgotten for so long, were speedily being printed and studied, and were colouring men's thoughts with the dreams of Plato, and the traditions of an age of republican freedom and dignity. The Roman dominion had first brought law and order to Western Europe, and the Latin church had restored it, but under both pagan and Catholic Rome, curiosity and innovation were subordinate to, and restrained by, organization. The reign of the Latin mind was now drawing to an end. Between the 13th and the 16th century, the European Aryans, thanks to the stimulating influence of Semite and Mongol, and the rediscovery of the Greek classics, broke away from the Latin tradition, and rose again to the intellectual and material leadership of mankind. End of chapter 49